0: what is going on everybody it's me your host nicholas willard coming at you from my almost cleaned out studio room (laughs) there's like Four boxes left. I'm telling you, this room this was stacked with boxes of junk. But I've got most of it moved out. It's almost ready to be set up. So I'm looking forward to that. Um if you would like to reach out to Almost Canon, share your story, you can get a hold of us at almostcannonpod at gmail.com. You can visit our Facebook page. Almost Canon Podcast. We have a an Instagram that I am semi active on. That is uh, at Almost Canon Pod. Like I said before, we had we have a website, but it it, it it's really not active at all. My my old co host he he still has control of that. I haven't I haven't bothered to get it from him yet, but but it will soon. Will be uh, up and running. So, well. I should say updated and active. So anyway, if, if you have a story you want to share, it uh, you know, doesn't matter what it is, could be anything at all, as you will see from tonight's episode, we are not just about the paranormal here at Almost Canon. Tonight is gonna be slightly different than these historical mysteries or these paranormal activities that you're that you're used to. Because instead of talking about, you know, demons or dogmen or lost treasure, we're going to be talking about extremism and one man's journey from a trauma and hate-filled lifestyle to one of love and acceptance. But before we get into our feature presentation, as I like to say, don't forget to follow and like, you know, our Facebook page, Instagram, uh... We got some a little bit of content on YouTube, not much. I always forget about the YouTube channel. i don't I'm not a big youtuber. I'm not even a big youtuber to to do research on like there's just like a bunch of videos that people you know you, you never know what's on YouTube. They always tell you don't use Wikipedia because it's out you know back in school. don't use Wikipedia because it's just a bunch of people making shit up all the time. Well, I feel like that's kind of what YouTube is and um I'd rather just just read. Get my information from from different books and sources, published on on these different academic websites and whatnot. Which brings me to my next thought: the ratio of episode downloads and reviews and ratings is is way off. My my downloads is way up, and my reviews and and ratings is way down. <laughs> it's way low. I, I don't know what's going on there. I don't even have. It's not even like I got a bunch of people rating me one stars. I just have nobody rating at all. So please, 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 if you can find the time to leave a rating and review, I would much appreciate it. Like I've said in the past, you leave a rating and review, um, send me an email, and I, I'll, I'll send you out a free sticker. I've got some left. Um, I can always order more. But yes, please, rate and review the show um it's really the best way you know everybody says yeah i i hate saying this because everybody says it all time but it is the best way uh to get the show out there you know i do my part i do what i can to promote the show by finding uh cool guests to bring on and talk about weird stuff but but um it it really just comes it really comes down to you guys, the listener. So please rate and review the show. Um on whatever on whatever you're listening to it on. But if you can, please rate and review on Apple Podcast. It it's um seems to be like the most important. It's the granddaddy of all podcast platforms. So we would much appreciate a rating and review. And don't forget, you can email us, visit our Facebook page, send us a message on Facebook. If you got a weird story, weird, creepy, interesting, I always hate saying crazy, but crazy story that you want to share, feel free. Don't be afraid. No judgment here. We've all had our fair share of of, uh, weird, unexplainable things happen to us. So don't feel like we'll judge you for sharing your story. But anyway, anyway. Now that that's all out of the way, let's get into today's story. Actually, there was one thing I I wanted to mention. You know, I, I didn't read anything about this, but but you, you know how we had the whole David Grush talking about all the, you know, these UAPs and UFOs and UFO retrieval programs and non-human biological entities being in some locker somewhere and some deep underground military base or something. You, you you know how we had that whole thing going on back in July. Uh, I keep seeing something about the same thing happening in Mexico, and they've got these like one thousand year old alien mummies that they're showing off. I don't know what that's all about. I'm gonna get to the bottom of this. They do look fake just from the pictures I've seen, but who knows? Maybe they're just dried up old aliens. Okay, let's get let's get to to today's episode. And today's episode is gonna be much different than than what listeners of almost Canon might be used to, but the topic isn't all out of left field. Do you always hear people talking about you know a uh, uh, another civil war? Could another civil war happen? You know, it'll never happen here, blah, blah 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 blah. But you know the fact is, a second civil war may happen, and it could easily happen here in America. I I think events from the past few years make that possibility that much easier to believe. You know, talk of civil war just doesn't doesn't sprout out of nowhere. You know, it doesn't come come out of nowhere. And today, I think we're going to be focusing on a topic that um, parallels talk of civil war. So I'm doing this interview on the heels of of 9-11's 22nd anniversary. So the thought of extremism is in the forefront of my mind. And I'll be honest, until relatively recently, when I heard talk of terrorism, the thought of, you know, like Al Qaeda or Saddam Hussein and Iraq and Afghanistan kind of all flooded in my mind, you know. And, and this this would be until, I don't know, 2015, 16, uh, with the rise of, of President Trump and, and all that Um you know, back in high school, I was I was uh, I was too distracted, too distracted with playing games like Call of Duty Modern Warfare or watching Team America, World Police, Jarhead or, or the Hurt Locker to realize that all this talk of Islamic extremism and Islamic terrorism was nothing more than a smokescreen, a smokescreen bolstered by what we were told so that the powers that be could, you know, seize those those vast amounts of oil. At the end of the finish line, you know, we were, we were told one thing. It was drilled into our mind, kind of like the classic magic trick, you know. I'm going to make you pay attention to what's going on in this hand so you don't see what's going on in this other hand. Classic magic trick. But don't get me wrong. As we saw with 9-11, Islamic terrorism was real and it was dangerous. But as we would find out less than two decades later, it wasn't what we had to worry about. I said all that to say this. While ISIS may be squashed and we've pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan, the war against terrorism is far from over. Extremist ideologies have never been more alive in this country. Whether they're racially motivated, politically or religiously fueled, or based on sexual orientation and preference, it doesn't matter. We've been so worried about radical Islamic extremism Coming at us from a place thousands of miles away, we forgot to watch our own backyards. And I mean, until quite recently, the average person probably thought groups like the KKK and the Aryan Brotherhood were gone. Or at the very least, somewhere within the gutters. That was until the Unite the Right rally in 2017. Now, the Unite the Right rally, I'm sure people remember it quite clearly. Uh, It was it was it was the rally where Heather Heyer, a counter protester, and she was run down by James Alex Fields, Jr. He plowed into a crowd of people with his car killing Heather Heyer. This rally brought white nationalist groups, neo-Nazi groups, neo-fascist groups and far right militias to the forefront of everyone's mind. Things like um, removing Confederate statues from public areas, which I believe they were there to protest the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue from some park. But uh, things like removing Confederate statues and later on in the COVID era, things like COVID restrictions, radical politicians and contested presidential elections would provide fuel for these extremist views. And they would really bring these groups to the forefront of everyone's mind. Uh, Congress even produced bills like S-894, where they found that white supremacists and other far-right-wing extremists are the most significant domestic terrorism threat facing the United States. And I believe in 2017, a Trump administration justice official wrote, White supremacy and far-right extremism are among the greatest domestic security threat facing the United States. Uh, Regrettably, over the past 25 years, law enforcement at both the federal and state levels has been slow to respond. Killings committed by individuals and groups associated with far right extremist groups have risen significantly. And yeah, there are other groups not associated with white nationalism or the far right. Groups like the new Black Panther Party, who have been designated a hate group as well by the Southern Poverty Law Center. But in the context, Of this episode, we'll be covering just one piece of the hate group slash extremist chart because on today's episode, we'll be talking about a white man who spent their life learning how to hate. This individual allowed the traumas of their childhood to easily spill over onto the battlefield of Afghanistan where he honed his skill for hate, especially after the loss of a friend. An accident involving an army truck and a busted axle would leave him with a broken back and an addiction to painkillers. It would be this addiction and a need for stability that would put him in the crosshairs of the KKK, where he would become an imperial nighthawk of the Georgia White Knights chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. He would burn crosses, plaster the streets with leaflets, train his Klan brothers on skills that he learned while in the army, uh, and abuse meth. But the hate would eventually melt away, And today, Chris Buckley is a different man. He is working with some very influential figures within the anti-hate community. And together, they're building something incredible. But enough of all that. I'm going to quit running my mouth and let the man speak for himself. So without further ado, Chris Buckley. So yeah, I mean, I heard you on the radio on NPR a while ago. And I was, I was like, I was like, wow. This this guy's got an incredible story. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, so I I I just want I just wanted to hear your story. I mean, I think it's it's important. Um, and wild, it's crazy. Yeah. So
1: I mean, like, uh, you you supposed to start at the beginning, or Uh, I mean, you got any any (laughs) specific areas you want to hear about? All right, so. Uh, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio In the mid-80s uh, Man From my earliest memories Like one of my earliest memories Is like I'm gonna start this this off with a banger, right? Like mm. being molested Right? Mm. I was molested by a same-sex family member For like a really long period of time, man Till I was like Like earliest memories Like that I didn't shut out I guess like we're around five Six years old and this went on until I was like eleven or twelve, man maybe thirteen. um this person was like my babysitter during the day when my mom would work uh, but like so as you as you might like be you might know and be aware of like during the like the nineties, there was this busing integration reform act in Cleveland, Ohio um where they wanted to bus kids from the east side to the west side and west side to the east side to kind of integrate the school systems a little more, which on paper it's a really great idea, like diversity and, and, you know, kind of like mixing the schools around. But in practice, it was really like not well thought out. (laughs) And they took like 150 kids from like the west side, shipped them all over to the east side. And like when I say that I was at like 81st and Sinclair and Martin Luther King Boulevard jr drive um it was bad so like, like the the kids that I went to school with were like direct family members with like bone thugs in harmony, right, which was like so growing up it it sucked because like my dad was like a really bad alcoholic and he was really involved in like substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And so it was really hard for dad to keep a job, man. Like he couldn't he couldn't hold a job down. I mean, hell, if, if it wasn't that he got hurt or he failed a drug test at work, it was that he laid up drunk all week and and just couldn't make it to work Monday. And he just like wasn't reliable and they would fire him. So all the jobs that dad had throughout my life were like really intensive labor, like like general labor jobs. Like I'm a roofer and I'm a I'm a mechanic, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'm I'm just gonna work for myself, type of stuff. But growing up and hearing this, it wasn't ever told like from the perspective of accountability, where it's like, son, I can't keep a job because, damn it, I can't I can't stay out of the bottle long enough. And I can't stop storing coke and smoking weed, man, and and I just uh, I'm having to, you know that's why that's why I'm working these dead end no, nowhere jobs, so. I didn't see my dad a lot when I was a kid, man. And like when I did see him, like it was, it was always bad, bro. Like it was always like, well, dad's home. I'm going to get my ass beat at some point in time over the next three days. And he'd always have like a swelled up eye where he was out bar fighting and come home to pass out and he'd wake up pissed off, hung over. And you know, the slightest thing would set him off and he'd, he'd whip my ass over it and you know, I dealt with the sexual abuse from an uncle on my mom's side. I dealt with the physical abuse from my dad. And then I had this kind of like indoctrination period where it was like, son, you know why I can't have a decent job? Because the damn Mexicans are coming over here and they're taking all the good jobs and, and it's it's left nothing for, for hardworking men like me. And and it's like when you're eight. 10 years old, like, what your fucking dad says is the word of God. Right. Right? So, like, I hear this, but, like, at the same time that I'm hearing all of this, like, your mom can't get welfare because the blacks are laying up on it. You know? And it's like, damn. I have this friends group, this this really tight-knit group of friends from the neighborhood, and, did we were all going through the same stuff. Like, we were all getting our asses beat at home. A, a few of us were being molested. um, So like we found refuge in a, a game of baseball. And it got to a point to where no matter what was going on at home, like those eight to 10 kids would be on a ball field playing baseball where we just have a designated hitter. Like everybody takes turn and we just field it and, and and play the game and we learned how to cope with adversity through baseball. And like, I'm going to give you more in depth parts of the story that I didn't give on NPR. You know what I mean? Uh, you're going to get stuff that like not a lot of people have gotten. So mm. um, part of, part of the the countermeasure of the messaging I was getting at home, which was by the way, like feminism is stupid Homosexuality is wrong, uh, interracial relationships are 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 a disgrace, like all that shit that I was getting at home. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't know if I was able to cuss or not. No, nope, that's fine. It. That's totally fine. Um, that messaging was counteracted by this really diverse group of, of kids that would just hang out in the the neighborhood and play baseball in an abandoned field. So as time moves on, I I, I I get into the to the middle school and they start to bus us, right? And my mom was like this big activist in the 90s against the Busing Reform Act. And uh, she would go to all the city, the city council and the school board meetings and they would pick it and they would get run out of there and she would take me with her a lot of times. And I got to see her fight for me, right? And I didn't understand at first what it was, but I, I remember the first experience I had with it and it's, it's it's ironic that the same things that my dad was telling me, those kids on the other side of the tracks parents were telling them about us. The reason we can't get off welfare is because of the white man. The reason that we can't get good jobs is because of the white man. Mm. So when I got there, dude, I was the enemy I, in the crosshairs. I had Target on my back when I walked off that bus. Um, I remember my grandma, she was on a fixed income. And every time I would have like uh, an issue at home where I would be getting whipped or I would be in trouble or it was just really tough. I would call Mama and she would come and get me. And uh, I would stay with her a lot. And my grandma was on a fixed income. So she got like a certain amount of money every month to cover her bills or needs or expenditures and whatever she had left over was her money. Mm-hmm. For and I don't know if you remember or not, but in the nineties, there was a magazine out called East Bay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and it was a, a, a sports shoes magazine. Yeah. So I would always get that magazine and it was delivered to mamaw's house and I would sit on the porch Crisscrossed applesauce, and I would be looking through all these awesome shoes—the right. Jordans, the Jumpman's, the the all these the, the Allen Iversons—and I remember my grandma come out one day and she had a a glass of water with a paper towel wrapped around it, and she was in her tank top and her grandma shorts, and she sat down in her in her rocking chair, the metal rocking chairs that had the like the hearts in it, <laughs> it was on the porch, and she she rocked back and she goes, son. Now my grandma's from like West Virginia. Okay. I to try to do the accent. She <laughs> goes, son, what you looking all them books of shoes for? And I was like, I don't know, grandma. I just I really like them. They're really cool. And she goes, well, which ones is you looking at? And she showed, and I, and I was like, Oh, I like these ones and these ones, and these ones are cool. She goes, Ugh. Ain't nothing but money wasting. She goes, if you could get a pair, which ones would you get? And I showed her the the the, the air jump mans, all black, had the blue and the white soles on them with the, the Jordan on the side. I remember my grandma saved the entire summer out of her check, and she bought those schools for me as my school shoes the year that I had to go to the east side. Nice. So I mean, like like Macklemore says, dude, tongues out, showing them off. I get off the bus, and I remember that I was, uh, I was, I was immediately grouped up on. Mm. And there was a couple of kids my age and a couple of older kids from like the middle school, high school age. And they they cornered me up against the side of the school, and they said, "Oh, look at this cracker with his fancy shoes." And uh, remember the one boy? He was older than me. He held his foot up. He said, "You see those?" He says, "Those are Jordans too." But they were slides. They were Jordan slides. And he kicked them off and they all jumped on me and beat the fuck out of me. Uh I remember getting peed on that day? Like the kid like whipped his penis out and peed on him. Shit. And uh I was probably 10, right? Wow. These were probably like 13, 14. And uh remember the one boy Pulls my shoes off of me. And he goes, oh, these will fit me just nice. Kick them Jordan slides at me. And he said, you walk a mile in my shoes, you cracker. He said, it ain't all peaches and roses over here. We don't get to afford nice shit like that. Mm. So that day forward, I started walking home from school every single day. Every day. I missed 181 days of school that year. And uh, that kind of cemented. For for a time, like all the shit my dad had told me, you know, so there's the grievance, there's the mm-hmm. the trauma, there's the the molestation that was trauma and grievance, and I can remember my earliest feelings of hate and and like, oh, I just couldn't stand it. Was towards the the, at the time we didn't have an LGBTQ, let alone an LGBTQIA plus, right. like we just had like the homosexual community. And we called them slurs, and that was the first form of hatred I ever felt. Mm. Right. So fast forward, I start getting I get into high school, the busing integration reform dissolves. They realize that kids have a, a school a block from their house. They should probably go to that school. And it's up to the city council to to keep the schools up and and to you know take care of the school system. So I start getting involved in like smoking a little weed, drinking a little my we we're 14, 15 years old, like hanging out at my buddy's house, and we'd stay the like, there. And his dad was Lebanese, right? From Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And one of the uh one of the, the big cultures in the Lebanese household is that a boy becomes a man at 14. So at 14, 15 years old, we're sitting at the table with the adults, and his dad pulls out a bottle of uzo. This is uh, Arabic liquor. And he fills up a fucking glass. (laughs) And he goes, and I remember his dad's accent, his voice, everything. He was like, Chris, you men here. You drink with the men. And I was like, oh, shit. He was like, I called your dad tell him you stay the night. Really why his dad did that is because he knew we were sneaking into his liquor. (laughs) And so he made us drink a glass of that shit. And uh, (laughs) we got so sick. So yeah. sick. But we would also sneak out and we would go to the store and we'd have the older kids in the neighborhood buy us 40 ounces. And we would sit in the alley, like drink the 40s out of the paper bags. And uh, my dad kind of found out about it and he was like, I got to get him out of here. Now, I still wasn't seeing my dad a whole lot. He was working out of town. And so I remember he just shows up one day with a U haul. <laughs> And he says, uh, y'all got 24 hours to get your shit. We're leaving tomorrow. And that was his way of getting me out of that lifestyle to where I didn't get overdosed or in prison or murdered or something something horrible. Mm. So we moved to southern Ohio, a little tiny-ass sleepy village of Vinton County which there's like nothing but crows cornfields and like hillbillies (laughs) about six hillbillies actually uh we were one group of them and uh so that whole period of my life was like pretty normal right like everybody looked like me there wasn't a whole lot of diversity i was really good at sports wasn't really popular with the ladies but i did okay and uh just remember, like, like that's, like, one of the really normal staples in my life. And I started getting in trouble a lot because, like, I was dealing with all the trauma. Mm. And, like, in my time, like, you yeah, I'm 40. So when I was 18, 19, like, dude, that shit doesn't exist. That's not an excuse to be a shitty person. But it was, right? I didn't understand it at the time. I'm screaming for help. So we, uh, like I said, like I, I played baseball my entire youth. When those, when that, when it was early enough to be able to leave the house without having to have permission from your parents, we all congregated at the ball field. We were the sandlot. All right, we didn't go home until the porch lights come on and our parents were screaming for us. We wanted to avoid that environment as much as possible. In the process of that lifestyle for eight, six years, you get pretty good at baseball. And, uh, so I played ball <coughs> and, uh, I did pretty good at high school ball. Right. And, uh, remember junior year, my coach came to me and he was like, Hey, no, no stress, no pressure, but there's some folks here looking at a few of you guys tonight have a good game. <laughs> you know, use your, use your, your, your mental IQ and, and don't be emotional at the game, like play the game and, and be, be composed. And, uh, you know, one of those schools was, uh, the Ohio state university. Um, another one was, uh, Athens, uh, Ohio state, like Ohio, just Ohio university, not Ohio state, uh, Oh, you uh the Wildcats and uh or the Bobcats. Anyway, there was some community colleges that was looking. So I mean, I and my coach pretty much told me he said, You if you play the the game good tonight, like you always do, if you can go to college. And I was like, sweet. Around the same time, the those damn recruiters were showing up to the school and uh I seen how well they did with the ladies, right? <laughs> and these girls are just groupies for a uniform, dude. <laughs> like, They see something shiny, they're like ferrets, bro. They're just like, ooh, right? And I wanted that, like that. That's what I wanted. Like, I was an athlete. I was good at at, at, at baseball. I was I was good at track. I ran the the three hundred meter hurdles, the one hundred meter hurdles, the two by four, the the hundred meter dash. Like I was, I was an athlete and I made the decision that like my parents don't get to decide what my future is. And I decided to join the army. Uh, I remember that it was a whole ass process. My dad forbid it. I had to like invite the recruiter over to dinner one night while dad was at work and have him kind of like me and him triangulate mom. And mom was like, well, I'll sign, but I don't know if your dad will. And <laughs> so mom signed, in, and at that time, you only needed one parent signature. So off I go, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, during my junior summer. I come back, and uh, man, the Army ruined me when it comes to authority. So I come back, and me and the principal, we didn't get along at all. Me and the coach didn't get along at all. Like, y'all wasn't going to tell me shit. I'm a U.S. soldier now. Like, And I dropped out of school and uh, got my GED, and went off to the military, and uh, then 9-11 happened, and, uh, you know, we had, we had to do our duty. Um, I I went to Afghanistan. Uh, Over the course of that time in Afghanistan, it was a really uneventful deployment. Um, Long periods of boredom, with short bursts of extreme excitement, Mm. is how I describe it, but I lost, uh, really close friend of mine and I didn't understand how as what I thought of at the time I was I thought I was a Christian right and I didn't understand how my god can tell me to to help them and to liberate them and to give them freedom and to to take care of them but their god can tell them to kill me didn't make sense there's only one god I just remember, like, I w- we were there. We were uh, it's a uh, it's a little it's a little route called Route Jeep. It's between uh, Fob Orgun E. We called it Oregon-E, but it was spelled O R G U N dash E, right? And Sharana. and it went right through the Coringal. Like Oregon-E was nine miles from the Pakistani border in the mountains, right? We were surrounded by mountains. And uh, we were taking supplies from Oregon to Sharana. I was on a uh, maneuver element. We were looking for IEDs. I remember my my my, my comrade. I was on a gun, and there was a uh, there was some communication that came over the lines, and they said, "Hey, we need y'all to get out and check this uh, load that's swaying real bad on this nine sixteen. We're getting ready to go through a wadi." We drop this load. We'll be here until we get it reloaded and get out. So get out and check the binders. Now, at the time, I smoked cigarettes. He chewed tobacco. Everybody was pissing in Gatorade bottles. All right. And uh, he was bigger than I was. I mean, not by much. We were, but so I, 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 I yelled down. I was like, hey, man, uh, let me get out and smoke. I'm on you know, fifteen thousand rounds of ammo. I can't light a cigarette in this bitch. He was like, Hell no, man. Like, I gotta get out of here and get some fresh air. So we get down, I hop down, the A-gunner jumps up to cover, and we're just goofing off horse playing in the bottom of this MRAP. It has a walkway like this wide, right? Just big enough for your legs to be in. And uh I fell down and twist and, and got twisted around. The back door pops open. He hops out and he's like aha and I was like, you motherfucker. And as I said that, he fell down. And I thought that he had like hit the ground and slipped and fell. So I come out the back laughing at him. And I noticed that he had a hole right here above his left eye. And the back of his head was, was Um He took the first round of an ambush over top of some rocks. The guy was just like over top. And uh, I remember I didn't have a helmet on throwed my rifle down, jumped out, and I grabbed him. And uh, I could see his right eye was like, it was dilated. It was blowed. His pupil was blowed out. And uh, it was kind of slowly moving in a really like, like it was looking around, right? And he was flexing his facial muscles, and it looked like he was trying to grasp for air. So I did what I thought was the best course action. I put pressure on the wound, right? And I want to describe to you in the best way possible what that felt like. Um, Fill a sock with broken glass, like slabs of glass and rocks. Then dip it in hot water. And then try to put pressure on that. That's what it felt like. Like, and in my mind, he wasn't dead. Like he wasn't. Like he was still alive. But my whole life, I've been an avid outdoorsman. I've deer hunted my entire life. You can see I got antlers all over the place, man. Yeah. and uh, I'm. I'm very familiar with post mortem reflex. I've never experienced this. So. I drag him back up into the M-RAP. I keep his head in my lap. I'm trying to hold pressure on the wound. And we get out of the kill zone, which is like a 30-meter a circle where you got to get through it and, um, you know, stop taking enemy fire so you can get an LZ established for wounded. Um, and I was like, we're not putting him on a bird. Like, we're not putting him on a bird. Like, at that point, I started to realize he's dead. And, uh... I remember a colonel from Fob from Sharana. We were 15 miles from Fob Sharana, which would have been like three hours at clearing speed. Um got on the radio and he said, soldier, you will stop and you will place that that wounded on a on a a bird. And I was like, with all due respect, sir, this isn't a wounded, this is a KIA, and he's gonna finish the mission with us. And uh I don't remember a whole lot after that, but there was a picture that was taken after we got into the fob and we put, put him into the hands of the field surgical team and they put him in the cooler, um, where I had taken my sunglasses off and put them on top of my head and I'd lit a cigarette. I was sitting on the back of the MRAP and somebody was like, Hey Buckley, smile. And I looked up and I had the cigarette hanging out of my mouth and you could see the print of the sunglasses where when he had been shot it sprayed and you could see the shape of the sunglasses on my face. And I don't know, something awoken inside of me and I felt the same hatred towards Muslims that I felt towards the person that molested me as a kid. That was probably a really deep source of trauma for me. Uh But, you know, when we get back, you know, after the deployment, we go through the mental health check and they're like, hey, do you feel like hurting yourself? Anybody else? You know, what's going on? And we were briefed in advance. Like, if you say that you have a problem, we're all going to go home. You're going to live here for the next six to eight months while they medicate you and, and do all this stuff. And it's best to just say, no, I don't have any problems and then seek services at the VA. So that's what I did. I get home, I got home in March of 2009. In May, on the 21st of 2009, the National Guard unit that I was a member of was deployed to a state emergency in Jackson, Kentucky. There was a flood and a tornado, and they just wiped out the whole city. And we were there for humanitarian. The lieutenant in charge of that mission decided he didn't want to ride in a Humvee the whole time he was there. He wanted his motorcycle there. So he went back to the armory, got a military V, which is, uh, it's the green pickup trucks, right? And he went to his house, loaded up his motorcycle, drove it to the to the duty station, unloaded his motorcycle and just left the truck there. When we were done with that mission, he said, Buckley, you're the one that's going to drive the truck back. Like, you got your license? Yes, sir. All right, take this truck back to the motor pool. The whole time that vehicle was deadlined, it was never supposed to leave the motor pool because it had a sheared axle. So guess what happened on the way back? Back axle sheared on that on that Cuckbee. The back end dropped, jumped forward, front end dug into the concrete, flipped it once end over end and seven barrel rolls down the highway. Broke my back. Oh, man. That was my introduction to opiate painkillers, mm. uh, a relationship that I had a love hate with for probably the next 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: got hooked on painkillers. My, my cognitive decision-making abilities. Once I got out of the army, there was no accountability. I could take as much as I wanted. The doctors just cuts me off one day. So I start resorting to illegal measures to get these, these painkillers. And, uh, The progression of 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 substance abuse and addiction took hold, man, and painkillers turned into to heroin, heroin to meth, heroin and meth, speedballing, and eventually, when I got out of the army, I just I found myself in a culture shock. Hmm. Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Am I pro life? Am I pro choice? Am I anti LGBTQ or pro LGBTQ? Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Like, what's going on with you? Who are you? And it's like, fuck, I don't know. I don't know what any of this means. Like, give me a minute. And like, I was pigeonholed into these boxes. And eventually, you know, being told for so long that me as the, the white guy was the problem, I eventually started to seek out other like-minded white guys who kind of had the same similar ideology as me. And I was introduced to a KKK member and uh during this time i was really struggling bro i was i mean like couldn't hold a job down i couldn't get my kids school clothes i was struggling to pay bills and they took care of all of that they 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 made sure that my kids had school clothes and and that there's food in my house one of the guys in the in the the group got me a job with him and and you know it was just constant drug use partying slick women and fast cars man uh, and, and it was just, it was encouraged to be violent and to, to act out and to rebel. And man, I just got tied up with these guys and, you know, uh, a a transactional relationship turned into five years of my life. So I officially joined in like 2013 and I didn't get out until 2016. Um, it took two years. From 2017 to 2018 to like really recover from the abuse that I put myself through through the drugs and the 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 alcohol and, and all of the extras, that by the time I got to a healthy place mentally, like my heart was still spoiled. So I, I remember my my wife had reached out to uh an individual, uh colleague, a great colleague and friend of mine, Arna Michaelis. Um who was the founder of the Hammerskins in Milwaukee, one of the largest neo-Nazi skinhead groups ever and the most violent, who had come out publicly with his story of of leaving hate groups and and leaving the ideology behind and his journey to recovery. And she was like, how do I help my husband? And Arno come to meet with me. um, You know, he, he showed up out of the blue It was a big deal with me and my wife. I felt like she had kind of went outside of our relationship to, to find help from another man. And -hmm. I was really just in my feelings about that because I was ignorant and I was, I was so prideful and, and, you know, I just didn't want to accept it. But the first thing that Arnold worked on was like furthering my recovery from substance abuse. And he shared his story with, with with substance abuse and, just all the challenges and and really helped me to find my recovery. Um, after that relationship was formed and there was a foundation of trust and, and just accountability there, he, uh, he then started to work on the ideology a little bit. And we started, uh, we, we took a trip, we, we call it the famous field trip where we went to uh, LA uh, we went and and served uh, the homeless people at the midnight mission, um, and I was like, "Why are we doing this?" And he was like, "Well, from your ideology standpoint, white people are the ones suffering, man. Like, white people are the ones who are 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 being forced from their homes and kicked out of their employment, and and they're the ones that are that are being left to fend for themselves." He was like, "So we're coming to L.A., the homeless capital of the world, and uh, we're gonna serve the homeless." And this is just an experiment for you to prove me right. I want you to see how many whites versus how many blacks or Hispanics. And I'll tell you, I counted four white people out of the 500 people that I served. So after that, we went over and we we hung out at a place that uh, is dear to my heart, uh, Homeboy Industries uh, in L.A. And uh, it's an awesome organization run by Father Greg Boyle and uh, Hector Verrugo um if you if you look them up they they take people that, that want to change their lives okay i found this they, on the they web for a you look
0: up check it out where did i cut out no it uh somehow the computer heard you and it started looking it up <laughs>
1: yeah that's what mine did
0: <laughs> that was weird
1: breaking crap man the cia is listening <laughs> um no but uh so like I mean, I met uh, Hector and and you know, uh, they have like round the clock tattoo removal surgery for these guys that come out of prison they got face tattoos, and it's like we're gonna remove that for you for free we're gonna we're gonna give you a job. you're gonna show up here tomorrow. you're gonna have your pants up around your waist. you're gonna work with your blood. I'm gonna put you working right beside a crib and if you can't do that, then you're not gonna get our services and they build these relationships like, It's such an amazing organization, and I remember Hector, who's Hispanic, looked at me, and he had these big, brown, compassionate eyes, man. Like, I still see him when I close my eyes, and in a really soft voice, he was like, why are you here? What do you want from this experience? Like, what is it that you're looking for? I remember, dude, I just broke down in tears. I was like, I just want peace. I'm so angry. And he was like, I can give you a hug. And I can I can give you some words, and I can give you some encouragement, and that that moment has stuck with me my entire like existence since then, and I really consider that the moment that my recovery journey started, from hate, from extremism, and then later on down the line, Arno had uh, went to a conference on Islamophobia, from for at the Carter Center in Atlanta, and uh, ran into Dr. Kelly, uh, Dr. Hoval Kelly who was presenting on Islamophobia and Arno uh, approached him and they sat beside each other and he was like, Hey, look, man, if you're really interested in doing this work and look, so every time I I talk about Arno, I have to impersonate him because he's got this really deep voice. So this is no different. So hold on. (laughs) So he goes, Hey, so, uh, you know, you you really want to help people, man. Uh, you know, I got this guy he used to be in a KKK, and if and you really want to do the work, like this is the guy that you've got to meet. You should really meet him. So that's probably the best of Michael's voice in the world. <laughs> um, you can you, you feel free to check on that anywhere and, and find a better one, and, and we'll go toe to toe on it. Um, but so Dr. Kelly was like, "Yeah, I'll meet him." And like there was a really long time where I just didn't want to respond to him. I would hope that he would go away, right? And mm-hmm. he would message me, and be like, "Hey, Chris, how are you? Uh, you know, I'm from Syria. I'm a refugee. Can I tell you why I love America?" And I was like, "All right, why do you love America?" And this is probably the most patriotic individual I've ever met in my life. And I'm a combatant, right? The amount of opportunities that that he got when he got here, that he had to work his ass off for, right? So this misconception that when an immigrant or a refugee come to this country, they're given a hotel, they're given uh, free college, they're given uh, tax-free exemption, like that's just simply not true, mm-hmm. right? Dr. Kelly's family was paid six months of rent, and they were on their own. The local church in the community came to them and helped them learn English. Haval uh, worked at a uh, he worked as a dishwasher, while his uh, other brother was in high school. His mom was unable to work; she she had no skills. His dad didn't speak English, so it was up to him and his brother to have jobs to support the family. Every day, he would walk by Emory University, and he would look in the windows. And there happened to be a doctor there that noticed that. And one day when he was walking home, that doctor came out and he said, are you going to keep looking in the windows or are you going to come in and talk to somebody? <laughs> so that doctor became a mentor for him. So he got him into med school and he worked his way through med school as a, a you know, and, and, and became a cardiologist. His brother is a heart surgeon. Um, But it was the opportunities that were afforded to him here by our our freedoms our our constitution our our way of life that allowed him to have the life that that was robbed from him in syria mm. and uh we talk extensively about that in the movie refuge mm. yeah uh, we, you know we we did a documentary it's called refuge it's mm-hmm. got myself uh dr kelly it's about our journey uh together and individually um where we just kind of go through it and you know, meeting him opened my eyes to a lot of, of things that I was voluntarily withholding from myself. The experiences that I've had with the Clarkston community and and just the people that that I've had the opportunity to meet and the places I've been in, invited to go, like the quality of life I have now is just so out of this world that five years ago, 10 years ago, like, it wasn't even it was more than just a dream it was like the entire obsession of of what i wanted i wanted my own home i wanted uh i wanted to 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 have my piece of of the american dream and dr kelly's the one that and uh, sorry i keep calling him dr kelly but he he always tells me call him haval but like <laughs> i i look up to him so much like that's We're the same age. You know, we both came from nothing. The difference is I squandered my opportunity. Everybody looks at him and they're like, we're so happy for where you are and and what you've come to. And he's like, yeah, but Chris started at zero. Same as me. But Chris moved to negative 100. And now he's back to 50. He's come way farther than I did. So when Aval came to visit me, he's seen the conditions I was living in. And he was like, This is worse than any refugee camp I've ever been to. He's like, This is this is the problem. This is America's refugees, a borderless prison with no walls. And uh so he he can speak on that. Whereas if I speak on that as a white guy, they're gonna be like, Oh, that's racism, that's bigotry that's but when you have a, a a refugee who loves this country more than a combat veteran does tell what the problem systemically is in this country people listen and uh that's been the the focus of our message and what we do and since then i I've, I've jumped on with an organization called parents for peace um i've been there since 2019 officially but 2017 is when I was introduced to Miriam Churchill, the executive director, who at that time, man, she's seen more in me than I could see in myself. Uh, she she had this belief that I could be a great person or at least a good person. Mm. And, uh, you know, she she put a lot of stock and equity into me. and And I've been with them since 2019. And for the first two years of that relationship, it was my probation period. I volunteered free of cert- free of charge. I didn't, I just volunteered to help any way I could. And, uh, so 2019 rolls around. I'm having a lot of, like I'd just been promoted to to supervisor for Walker County, Georgia, where, where i you know rebuilt my life at, um, Walker County, Georgia will always be home to me. Um, it's the first place that ever became a home. And, yeah. uh, I, I was taking on a lot of hours. There was a lot of responsibility. And I was kind of slacking on what I was able to do with Parents for Peace. And I remember I come to Miriam and I was like, Miriam, I'm gonna have to to take a back seat and step away. She was like, What do you make it at uh, your job? I told her. And she said, I'll pay you that and offer you a full-time position here. You work for us now. So I quit that job and and I've been with Parent for Peace ever since. Um they've really mentored and helped me grow like everybody on our team uh Pardeep Kalika is probably one of the biggest mentors and somebody that I strive to emulate in my life um you got Miriam Churchill who's become a second mother to me uh you know there's a lot of new people at the organization that that weren't there when I started but have become family to me like Emma Joan who's our our consultant in France that that was a major piece of, of us being able to move from the little, you know, measly nonprofit that didn't really have a lot of funding into this very publicly, you know, display of, of, of being a a leader in this industry of, of de-radicalization and doing the work in, in, in intervention and extremism if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't be able to, to get these DHS grants and to to, to operate the way we do. And uh, she's like a sister to me. Um, you got Mubin Sheikh, who is like, I will always refer to him as the guru of all things Islam. Um, you know, you have the, the Sunnis and the Wahhabis, right? The Sunnis are like the Jedi and the Wahhabis are like the Sith. And and Mubin is like the the Luke Skywalker of the of the 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 the, the, the Jedi. I mean, like, <laughs> and he's, he's my best friend, you know. And and I get to work beside Arno Michaelis now, the guy who come and mentored me out of my hate. I get to work side by side as an equal with, and the the movie has just been a blessing, like to to have all this coming from where I've been. Is surreal mm. and there's still parts where i don't believe it's true yet and and i'm still working through parts of my life where i self-sabotage mm. and, and i i find myself trying to to justify why i don't deserve this mm. and the reality is is that i've worked really hard to be here mm. to to be uh a representative of of this organization in this field and I do deserve it. Mm. And, and so does every single one of the members of our team. Um, you know, our, our, our newest addition, uh, Deanna Hughes has come in and just really been a powerhouse of, of getting us involved in the, the grant funding and the, the public, just the, the view of like DHS and, and, to to allow us to to operate in a more efficient and and healthy way like people like will will ask all the time like who who is the most influential person in your life and like I, i can't make that decision because they all are like so influential to me and without one of them i couldn't be who i am today my wife the 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 true star of the movie refuge (laughs) <laughs> who who reached out to Arno like like there would be no me without her, mm-hmm. uh, so that's my
0: story, man. That's, that's, <laughs> so I know there's questions and and we can get to that part now. Yeah, I mean, I so yeah, I heard I heard you a little bit on on NPR or what I, th- I think it was NPR something like that, and then I watched that refugee movie, um, and I was like, I just I got to get a hold of you somehow and i searched all around and i couldn't figure it out um and i think it was was the parents for peace i saw like an email address for you or or something so i reached out through them and i got a hold of you um and i was just i don't know i just i just i think your story is is it's just incredible it it, it really is like you really have come super far especially in today's day and age um, with everything that's going on right now, it's it's like incredibly important to to share these 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 type of stories. Yeah, um, I think that I think that when I can
1: use my story to to be a roadmap or at least a, a boundary guideline for like what recovery can look like, and you know, since since getting with Parents for Peace, like. You know, I've 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 obtained my certified peer specialist in mental health through the state of Georgia. I'm also a forensic peer mentor uh, through the state of Georgia. I'm currently going through the process of getting my certified peer recovery specialist through the state of Tennessee, so that I'll be able to work with the addictive, the substance mm-hmm. side of it. Um, Parents for Peace, uh, along with myself, is is partnered with Georgia State University to create a curriculum for exit peer specialists to do the work that I do so that we can replicate what, what it is that we do and create an industry that, that this is their job to, to help people leave hate, leave extremism, leave the unhealthiness and the trauma and, and recover from that and take their, their lives into their own hands and stop being, you know, pigeonholed by the media and our our two-party system of government, and you know, all these, these different social media platforms that are just aimed out to divide us. And when we realize that the real culprits behind the division in this country are the the military industrial complex, big pharma, yeah. the, the lobbyists, and these, these these lobbied lifetime congressmen and women. Who don't have any term limits, who come into Congress as a representative of the people with a measly hundred and fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year salary, that end up being millionaires because of insider trading and stock deals and lobbyists that that you know lobby their agenda and these corporations that that want to keep us divided and want to keep us focused on race and religion and sexuality and and all these different things that really we're 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 so much more alike than we're different but if we're fighting amongst ourselves we're not seeing the true evil going on in these systems and we can't lobby for term limits we can't lobby against these these bad actors and people are like oh well democrats this and republicans that the left wing and the right wing are both wings of the same bird
0: right yes um i feel like we can we got we could just talk about so much, <laughs> but yeah.
1: uh
0: uh, I also wanted to say that that um, just leave everything else aside the addiction part because I was also uh, I've been addicted i'm I mean technically, I guess I'm still an addict, but I was also addicted to you know percocet and heroin and yeah, stuff like so. that for years um I've been sober for I don't even know my kid's like eight years old, nine, so nine years. But um, even that's just awesome, that man. alone, it's that's like, awesome, bro.
1: <laughs> like, hey, hey, I don't know if anybody's told you today, but like, I'm proud of you, man. Like, that takes so much to to be able to come back from that, and to to have that much time mm. under your belt, and and to know that that entire nine years you've been there, you've been present, you've been a a part of that of of your child's life. Like, dude, like, don't ever <laughs> hesitate to look in the mirror and tell yourself you're proud
0: of you. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. Wow. No one's really ever said that. So thanks.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and you know what, like to take that even a step further, um, for the first couple of years of my son's life, I was, I was an active addiction mm-hmm. and uh, methamphetamines, heroin, pain pills, Oxycontin, uh Opanas, all mm-hmm. of it. And uh, you know, I missed a lot. I missed so much. And and to know that, that you were able to get that in check in time and and not miss those first steps, not miss those first words, not miss, you know, the hey, let's go to a ball game, let's let's just go out in the yard, let's watch TV. Like to to know that you were there for that, that makes my heart happy. <laughs> and, and I know that at some point when you tell this story to your son about how how you struggled and how he was a force for you to get better. Like that's going to
0: mean so much to him. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, it was definitely rough at first, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it is because of him that I've, I've stayed sober. (laughs) I don't I don't even know if I could talk about this. (laughs) It's okay, man. It's okay. Look, look. So with me,
1: like you, you hear people talk a lot about like their higher power. Right, and and everybody wants to jump into that box of higher power is your religious power. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm a heathen, right? And and like you can see, like I've got the 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 Viking compass with the warrior runes underneath. I got hugging and Mutin on my neck. Uh, I'm a I'm a Viking. I'm a warrior, mm-hmm. right? And and when I die someday, I hope I could die with my sword and shield, and I can enter Odin's halls of Valhalla, right? But our higher power can be anything. Right. Our higher power can be the probation officer that supervises us, right. the court system that has jurisdiction, or our, our kids, our children. And my kids are definitely my higher power. Every time I look at them, it, when when I, I have these intrusive thoughts, like I want to use again, I look at my kids and I think of, like, I can't leave them in this world by themselves. So, like, don't ever, like, yeah, you did this for him, but you did this for you so that you could do this for him.
0: Yeah, and I mean you're definitely your story is is definitely an incredible story. Um you definitely have been through a lot. And and I do, I do want to thank you for sharing it and I I was definitely glad I got a hold of you. Um but I I don't, I don't even know where to go from here. I mean,
1: it's it's cool, man. I had uh, a bunch
0: of stuff written down, but I don't it I don't even I don't think, I don't even know. <laughs> Everything I wanted to talk about is just, it, it's it's kind of out there right now.
1: <laughs> it's, it's cool, man. Uh, I mean, like, I guess if if I had to leave your, your listeners with like one message, it would be that, you know, what divides us isn't important. It's what brings us together. And when we can sit down with anybody and find out that we have so much in common with them, Right, like the xenophobia, the fear of of other and foreigners, or this homophobia. Like, there's some legit, there's some legitimacy to people being afraid of their children being, you know, indoctrinated with with these things. Like, like as a parent, I I I worry every day that somebody's going to introduce my child to some material that I don't want them introduced to yet. Right, but. We, we have to do our diligence as parents. And when we do find that that's happening and we take it to the appropriate you know, people re- in response, we can't allow other people to tell us that we're being unreasonable by going to a school board and saying, I don't want this material in my school library. Or by saying that we don't want people who are giving burlesque style shows <laughs> in a public space as drag queens in front of our children. Like, do I want them to have the freedom to be able to, to express themselves and live their best life? Absolutely. Right? Like, I want them to be able to have their shows. I want I don't think that they should be like looked down upon at all. Right? But I just think that there's a line that gets drawn when you do it around children. Right. Mm-hmm. So for the same thing as like a child's not allowed in a topless bar, <laughs> a child shouldn't be allowed around right. a a a fully augmented male in transition with top surgery that he could see their naked breasts
0: Mm.
1: right like i feel like it's there's a line that's crossed there and there's a lot of parents out there that are using this as a status like oh i'm the parent of a trans child Mm. okay that may be true right and and you have the right to to be that parent and to facilitate this this lifestyle, but I think that the developmental minds of children are so fragile that depending, like it's the same reason ISIS can have like child soldiers, mm. right? You get them at young age, you can indoctrinate them to believe and to to, to follow anything you want. And, you know, I can't go into a bar and and buy beer unless I'm 21, can't get a tattoo unless I'm 18, you know, 16 with a parent's consent, written consent. But we can we can do things with these children that could potentially harm them for life that are way worse than getting a tattoo. You know, I just think that as, as parents, we have to really stand up for what we believe in. And we don't, standing up for what you believe in isn't a prerequisite to hating the other person. You mm. have to understand that multiple truths can be whole mm. at any time. And what's my truth might not be your truth, but we both have the right to that truth. And if we can't come to terms and agree on that truth, then we just focus more on what we do agree on and we focus on the humanity. right, Spirituality of, I see myself in you, and i see you in every person and thing that i look at right and mm. if i do nothing to harm you then i've done nothing to harm myself and none of us want to harm ourselves on
0: purpose right right it's almost like you know it's either this side or that side there's no middle and if you're on this side um then everyone on this side you know is your it's enemy like, right exactly there is
1: it's the classic us versus them
0: mentality. Yeah, You have the in-group
1: and the out-group. And if you look at it from the very common and socially acceptable standpoint, of Republican and Democrat, right? And you use like that toxicity towards the political opponents. But then you say, oh, but you can totally hate somebody because they're a Democrat. But you can't hate somebody because they're gay. You can't hate somebody because they're black. You can't hate somebody because they're from another country. You can't hate somebody because they're trans. Well, explain the logic to me behind that. So then what you're saying is that we we can't hate somebody because of their political affiliation, right? I agree with every statement other than you can't hate somebody of their political affiliation. You can't hate somebody because they're black or brown or gay or straight or Christian or Muslim. Like that's that's lunacy, It's it's absurd. <laughs> But to tell people and to encourage political hatred, it's the same thing. It's political extremism. It's just like white supremacy or Islamophobia or, you know, uh, anti-immigration or transphobia. It's the same thing. Right. So when we can really come to terms with what hate and extremism look like, then we're at a point where we can really start to heal as a country. But it starts with us. And then it starts with our relationships in our community, and when we can be the agent for change, we can we can really set a course that that we can peak. We can really hit our hero arc as a country.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. I mean, I had a bunch of stuff that I wanted to talk to you about, but it's definitely way way different than than where we went. So I think on that note. If you ever want to do an episode two man just reach out dude we could do we can do a part two on this yeah I mean <laughs> I think that'd be good because you were definitely getting at some some pretty interesting things
1: yeah man like it's it's not a big deal just uh just hit me up and and let me know be like hey I'd like to do a part two and uh now that my story's out there we don't have to worry about the story we could just jump into the right right and and you can get your stuff squared away and
0: know where you want to to take it and and I'm I'm always up for yeah, for... definitely. Like I said, I heard you on on the radio and I looked and I looked and I didn't see anything else really, um, about your story. Or you know, there are a couple things here and there. Hey, look if you want to if you want to find
1: out a little bit more about me, just Google Chris Buckley, but put a KKK at the end. That'll take up like the Washington Post articles and the People right. and all of that. Or you can also put in Chris Buckley Refuge twenty twenty three and you'll get even more responses. Yeah, like-
0: I I saw the 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 documentary. I watched that, um, but I I didn't. There was nothing like uh, audio wise. Like you know, I didn't hear like I I'm a postal driver, so I drive around all day, you know, finding things to listen to. And there really wasn't anything else. You know, yeah. like, I wanted to listen to your story, really. You know, and I couldn't just listen to it. I had I had to watch it or something. So.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I haven't done too many. Uh, I, I've done a few podcasts, um, but not a whole lot. Like I've done one with uh, a friend of mine who wrote this book here, um, David Cooks. Uh, he's the author of a book called Getting Undressed from Paralysis to Purpose is the name of the po- podcast. Uh, he was paralyzed. And uh, I've done that podcast uh i've done a uh, podcast with another awesome lady um the podcast is called meredith for real i've done her podcast uh we've we've done a few things uh yeah. So i mean there's some podcast out there but uh you, you really gotta just look for them i don't know what those podcasts are on uh yeah. i assume like spotify and stuff Probably like that right. yeah uh, yeah so i mean like yeah you can you can maybe look there um but yeah, there's there's definitely some good reads out there if if you get a chance to like read through some articles and stuff. Yeah,
0: no, I I saw the uh, the Washington Post article. But yeah, you're, you're you're you really are. You're you're inspiring. Um, your story's incredible. You've definitely done a lot of work, um, a lot of good work. Oh, bro, we're
1: we're just getting started, man. Stay tuned. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I will be. I don't know. I'm I'm speechless. I'm I'm really speechless. It's just. And maybe maybe it's because I, I was also an addict and I just see this, how incredible this, this your whole journey has been. Um, hey, you know, the old saying, we do recover. Right. Um, uh, projects, I mean, I can
1: give you a little tidbit taste. Uh, so we're working, I've created a program called the Trauma and Recovery Program. And uh, it's designed for military and first responders at this point. Uh, working on a version for the prison system. I'd like to have one for grades K through eight uh, and then one from like uh, nine through post high school uh, students to identify and address traumas that lead to vulnerabilities in radicalization ideology and you know extremist groups, uh, hate crimes and and adverse kind of, of ideologies in in the public sphere. Um, trauma is always at the root of of ideology just like it's always at the root of addiction and mental health so Mm -hmm. when we can when we can uncover the traumas that that make us vulnerable we can identify and and remedy those those grievances um taking away the need to cope so this is a moral cognitive program that's modeled loosely after a 12-step substance abuse program or a 12-step al-anon or cma program Uh, And what we've done was we've replaced the addiction portion through a public health approach with trauma and mental health and some other, you know, high risk factors that we've noticed through the work we do at Parents for Peace that kind of lead to extenuating vulnerabilities. Mm. So the program is designed to give people a toolkit, a network of resources, and the ability to do the moral cognitive work to change their thoughts change their thinking patterns their worldviews in the sphere of which they see the world and also provide insight into their self and and their own journeys on on how to heal and uh so that's a really cool program that, that we've done we've piloted it with the uh, uh aurora police department in colorado we've got some good results there working with a organization called secure family initiatives uh uh, lady Rebecca that that we're working with now to start an initiative to uh maybe provide some legislation to help out with you know how we how we get soldiers and and first responders involved in this uh mm-hmm. program to get it in front of the right people and and hopefully that'll take off here soon uh you know so so that's another little cool project that that I've got going and parents for peace <laughs> is really helping to uh to get that project going and, and and develop that a lot since, since I've come on board. So. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Um, something, man, always something. As I said, you know, you, you're like, man, it's an incredible exciting. journey. <laughs> yeah. We're <laughs> just, we're just getting started, man. We've just left the, I've just left the tarmac, like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be a whole ass menace in this field of, of helping people. And, and, you know, the, the goal for me is to, To take out more bad than I've put into the world. And if I can absorb 10, 10 times the bad energy and to fix that and then to allow that to be able to replicate and magnify, Mm. like that I want that to be my legacy. Like on my headstone, I want it to say
0: husband, father, and healer. Mm. Yeah, that's exciting. (laughs) It's some cool stuff. Um, we're definitely gonna have to do a part two you were definitely talking about some very interesting things. Um, But I I just don't want to, I don't want to go there. You know, I don't want to spoil what what this is because this was. Yeah,
1: for sure, man. So yeah, if you, if you want, like uh, we can, we can cut it here and uh, we can, we can just say, stay tuned for part two and uh, we'll get it. We'll get a schedule and get back on here and uh, we'll get into the skinny. Maybe you can ask some of your listeners if they want to, submit some questions that i can answer on the, on the next session and 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 that way you know you get the the listeners interacting and and they yeah. can submit some questions via email or whatever to you
0: yeah definitely we'll figure it out That that sounds great um so yeah you want to you want to just shoot out the parents for peace again and
1: yeah, for sure, man. Uh, I, I'll, I'll start by saying that if you or a loved one you know is suffering or, or becoming vulnerable to extremist ideologies or viewpoints or you fear that they're being radicalized, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Our uh, website is www.parents4peace.org. Uh, our national hotline is 844 49 peace um you know when we have uh we have an intake uh helpline monitors we're we're open uh to to taking those calls in and, and getting somebody to reach back out to you and consulting and getting you intake once again we are a nonprofit, so uh this is part of the nonprofit sphere that we work in we we help people that call in that need help and uh we'll never charge you a dime or or extort money out of you or ask you for nothing we just we just there to help uh so you know if 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 you have any questions or or you're worried about somebody man just uh
0: reach out to us and heck we might be working together soon (laughs) nice yeah cool well it was great talking to you your story is definitely inspiring and incredible it's definitely one of the best i've heard and I'm
1: just an ordinary dude that was put into an extraordinary situation. And I, and I ended up clean <laughs> on the other end, dude, no different than anybody else. I just had a little bit better opportunities to yeah. and a better support network than, than some people have. And mm. that's another part of the important work that we do is providing that support network.
0: Yeah, definitely. People, so. Definitely. So yeah, cool. Thanks for coming on. Um, and we'll have to plan a part too absolutely man reach out let me know i'm down all right cool thank bye, you see if i can get you out of here all yeah, right brother you have a good thanks,
1: day and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening man and we'll talk soon
0: yeah you too all right later man. bye all right well that was that was an incredible i don't know about you guys it wasn't i know it's it's not paranormal it's slightly different than than our normal show but I'm telling you, I I heard I heard him on NPR. You know, I was just listening to NPR. Sometimes I I scroll through the NPR podcast to listen to some of these uh, episodes that interest me. And I scroll through them and I saw this one and I I just randomly heard his his uh, interview. And I was like, man, I got to get that guy. I got to talk to that guy. I want to hear his full story. They they just had five minute snippet or or whatever of, of, of him of him telling a story and I, oh it, it, was, and it was hard. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. It, I think I heard that way back in the beginning of summer and I was able to finally get through to him not too long ago. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. It was different than what you're used to hearing, but I think it's definitely something that is relevant to today's day and age and the political climate that we have going on in this country. And like, you know, like we had talked about it briefly with the you know, you're either on this side or that side. There's no in between. Nobody wants to talk about anything. Everyone wants to fight. Um, and just the fact that he was, you know, he was within the KKK. He was. He was an extremist. That that. that I don't I mean. I don't know how else to put it other than that. You know, he he was an extremist. Um, and he got out. And now he's helping other people who are in situations just like he was get out of that and get out of that safely. And that's an important message. And I wanted it out there. I wanted people to listen to it. I wanted people to hear it. And I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, if, if, if you're like me, then you're listening to, you know, podcast episodes on on Ruby Ridge, on the Waco seeds with David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, you know, and that Mount Carmel compound. And I have a little bit of a hot take on that. i It might be a little different than what people might normally think, but i I personally, and I'm just gonna say it, I think David Crash was a little crazy, and he probably started those fires that killed all those people. But yeah, you know, I'm listening to all these sorts of Ruby Ridge, Waco, the Kansas City bombing, you know all these these there's there's tons of, and that that's only some of them. there's there's so many different types of of domestic terrorism that's going on even within the just the last few years that it's important to have people like Chris Buckley, uh, you know, actively trying to help people in those situations, get out of those situations before we do have a, a, a Waco or a, a Ruby Ridge, um, or a Kansas city bombing or, a. We're recording this on September thirteenth. so nine eleven is very clear in our minds. And Lord knows, none of us want another nine eleven. and people like Chris Buckley are out there helping to get people out of extremism. I don't know. I'm not, I could just rant and rant and rant and go on and on and be confusing and talk myself in circles. The fact is, it's important to have people like Chris Buckley out there helping remove individuals who probably feel trapped and don't know what to do, want to get out. You know, it is, it's just like addiction. You know, you, you an addict doesn't want to be an addict, but they have to keep going. They have to keep being the addict because there's nowhere for them to turn. There's nowhere for them to go other than back to the pill or back to the syringe or whatever you're doing. You, you know, you're trapped. You feel trapped. So having people out there like Chris Buckley, Helping these people out of extremism and soon out of addiction, um, it's incredible. That that's just what he's doing now. His just his his story is is incredible, <laughs> uh, and it, it truly is inspiring. He he really is. He's been through a lot, and to see where he is today, it, it is inspiring. And when you're scrolling through all these different news articles of all this horrible stuff going on in this country, it's nice to know that there are people like Chris Buckley out there who, who have the experience, who have been there. They have been there in that situation, and they're there now to help people get out of it. Um, so yeah, that, that's Chris Buckley and his, his inspiring story and and quite frankly i thought it it was it was also important just to get it out i mean i'm telling you i i looked for podcasts um trying to hear chris's story and and i didn't find any so hopefully now there'll at least be something out there for people who are interested and even for people who who might want to get away who might want to get out of the situation they're in now they can go they can at least see that there is somebody out there who will help them and maybe that person will contact Chris and he'll be able to help them get out of whatever situation they're in and back on the road because none of us want to be stuck in the ditch so that's Chris's story Chris Buckley that is definitely full canon have a good night folks I'll see you next week